Before we get into the uh, sermon, if you'd like to open your Bibles up to Galatians chapter 5. We've been preaching verse by verse through this wonderful book. We took a brief break last week to uh, put our emphasis on uh, the sanctity of life. Um, And I think Paul did a wonderful job of preaching how important uh, our attention to that issue is. Uh, But we're going to be back in Galatians chapter 5 today. Uh, But before that, I just want to give you a little update on our deacon training. We are uh, right now currently training our first group of deacons that First Family Church has ever had. And so we're very, very grateful for their diligence and study and their uh, willingness to come alongside us in training and to apply themselves to the health of this church as they're serving in love and truth. Um, We are going to be voting to ordain these deacons, these uh, these men, on the uh, day we have our annual business meeting. So what we're going to do is we're going to send you out an email if you are a member of the church. You're going to be receiving an email, and it's going to have the list of the names of the men who are candidating for those positions. And uh, you're going to reply to that email with a yay or nay vote for us. And then on the day of our annual church business meeting, we'll announce the results of that. Um, These are men that you have nominated, and uh, we've given you lots of opportunities to give us feedback in this process. And so we're we're very confident that uh, these are men that you have confidence in. So um, we anticipate a a strong, healthy vote for them. Um, But we'll reveal those results on the the 26th, is that right? I believe that's February. Uh, That's the day of our annual business meeting. So be praying in the meantime for these gentlemen. Uh, Mark Evans, Stephen Kessner, Matt Mlekish, Mike Provencia, Jeff Strother. Uh, We've been praying for Dan Jude as well, considering all the the hardships that their family has been going through recently and his need to focus really on ministering to his family. Dan has asked to remove his name for consideration at this time. So thank you for praying for him and his family. He's very grateful for the opportunity and has really enjoyed the studies but the timing is just not right for him to serve in that capacity right now. So um, continue to pray for these guys, and uh, also pray for Matt. We're going to be doing an ordination council for Matt Sherman, our worship leader, on the 7th. We're going to gather together with some other pastors in the area. We're going to give him the, the, the grill treatment. We're going we're to make sure that we ask him every awkward question known to, known to Christendom, and hopefully he'll be able to uh, survive the gauntlet, but uh, we trust that he will. So be in prayer for Matt as we've been training him through to be serving as an elder at our church. God's making some great things happen here and increasing our our health, so we're very, very happy uh, for the things that he is doing. So if you've got your Bibles open, we are in Galatians chapter 5, and in this first part of Galatians chapter 5, we've learned that freedom that we now have in Christ should not be seen as a license to sin, but rather as a new opportunity to love one another in a godly way. How we use our Christian freedom is of critical importance to the Christian who wants to glorify the Lord with their whole life. And it seems that the Christian has a very narrow path to walk as we think about the different challenges that have come up in this letter to those churches in that region of Galatia. They've been contending with false teachers. They've been dealing with some internal conflict. And so uh, as we see the way that Paul, the apostle, is teaching them and training them and guiding them through this process of conflict, we see that if we allow our thinking, if we allow our ideas to go too far in one direction, if we put too much focus on what you do or do not do and all the the laws and the rules and the regulations, then you begin to crawl back into the slavery of the law. The law becomes like a yoke to us again. It burdens us. It weighs us down. Uh, The error there is legalism. Trusting in your deeds and failing to extend the kind of grace to others that Jesus Christ has extended to you. So we don't want to err too far to that side. We also have to be careful not to go too far in the other direction. Put too much 
focus on your personal freedom and the wonderful grace that God has been given to you, you begin to sin and, 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 have a, and, and allow wickedness to have a place in your life. The error there is impurity. Your testimony becomes tarnished because you feel that the grace of Jesus is so powerful that you can just do whatever you want to do and it's just going to cover your, your actions and, and your deeds. But when you're impure, you can't accurately represent the Savior that has saved you because your fleshly way of life looks nothing like His. So we have a very narrow path that's put before us, which makes sense because Jesus says, narrow is the path that leads to life and wide is the path that leads to destruction. But thankfully, through the grace of Jesus Christ and the gift of His Holy Spirit, we've been given the ability to walk through life in a whole new way. This path that we have been put upon, it's not up to us and our wisdom and our strength to walk it properly. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as this amazing resource that is going to come alongside us as a great helper to make this possible. And so we're in Galatians chapter 5, and we are going to be looking at verses 16 through 21 today in our study together. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul points out that two desires are present in every earthbound believer. The desire of the flesh exists in us so long as we still walk this world. As long as we are still in these earthen vessels, we will be battling against the desires of the flesh. These are the desires that we have that are built into the human experience. Everyone who descended from Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, have inherited these desires of the flesh. And so long as we are here on earth, they are a powerful force that we have to contend with. When the apostle refers to the flesh here, he's not just talking about our skin and our muscles and our bones. He's not only referring to the physical body that we dwell in. This term, the flesh, is grander than that. The idea of the flesh is comprehensive. It is the temporal side of who we are. Anything having to do with our body, our mind, our soul, and our will that does not align with the will of God is considered our flesh. Before a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we constantly lived by the will of the flesh. That was the only mode of life that we knew. It was the default motivator that drove our desires and our our choices and our, our convictions. But when Jesus Christ came, a new desire was introduced to us from outside of ourselves. So we have the desire of the flesh and we have this external desire that now comes to be a part of who we are. And it is the desire of the Spirit. So to clarify, when Paul is talking about the Spirit here, he's not talking about your spirit. 
We know that every be human being has a spirit. We have life in us that God has, has given to us. But when he's talking about the spirit here as opposed to the flesh, he's talking about God's Holy Spirit. One who trusts Jesus for salvation now has two spirits to draw from. Their own spirit, their own breath and life that has been given to them by God. And the Holy Spirit which has taken up residence inside of the body of the believer. We get to walk around now with the very presence of God. Now you've read in the Gospels and the New Testament about how God would often cast out a demon from somebody who had a possessive spirit. Don't think that Jesus' Holy Spirit comes upon you in such an aggressive and violent way. The Holy Spirit comes upon us not to take hold of us and force us or manipulate us, it comes into us to be a helper to us, as Jesus describes. We come alongside the helper. We live by the Spirit. Or, as believers, we grieve the Spirit that dwells within us. We draw upon His power and wisdom, or we neglect Him. These two desires exist within every believer, but they do not have a desire to coexist. They are constantly at enmity with one another. Verse 17 says, The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The Spirit of the flesh wants to keep you from doing the things that you know you should do that are glorifying to God. The Spirit of God that dwells in you is trying to keep you from doing the things that your flesh wants to do that would be a disgrace to God which would tarnish your, your witness to His greatness and His glory. So there are opposing desires. And there is a continual struggle, a conflict, within the heart of every man and woman, whereby these two incompatible desires are struggling to have a greater influence in our lives. The Apostle Paul describes this again in another letter, the letter to the Romans, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand. For when I delight in the law of God in my inner being, I see in my members, meaning in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This passage of Romans assures us that the struggles being laid out here is not just a Galatians problem. As we read about this church and its struggles a couple thousand years ago, these are the same struggles that we battle against. They're the same struggles that the Apostle Paul, as a believer, had to struggle against himself. Even this faithful missionary who was so dedicated to the work of God acknowledged that that battle existed in him. And he goes so far as to call it a war. Now that's a very, very powerful word. What image does that word war evoke in us? We probably think of death when we think of war. We think of destruction. We think of intense battle. We think of strategy. We think of allies. We think of weapons of war. We think of danger and of collateral damage. We think of cost. War is expensive, isn't it? And so what are the stakes of this spiritual war that is being raged inside of us? Paul says those who gratify the desires of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there is much at stake here. Those who allow the flesh to overcome them, those who live according to their own desires and ignore God's command to walk in the Spirit are not true children of God. Before we trusted in Christ, we don't really even fight this battle. We don't have the weapons 
or the desire to do so. We thought that so many of the things that we did were right. Do you ever look back at your life and take catalog of how you behaved before you were a believer? And consider how different you are now than you were then? And back then you think of things that you did and you didn't think twice about them. You didn't feel bad about them. You didn't even try to hide them. They were just who you were. But now as a believer, there is a greater view of the holiness of Christ. And you see what you were before and you think, how could I have talked like that? How could I have enjoyed that? How could I have found that entertaining? That's, that's so contrary to what I love now. That's so different than what God is making me to be. So when we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we didn't even try to fight that battle most of the time. We thought the things we were doing were right or that we were justified in our sinful actions. We may have felt conviction from time to time for certain actions that we did, but not enough to honestly and humbly seek the mercy of God. Usually, we regretted what we did because we felt it was going to have a bad implication in our comfort in life, and in, in our benefits in life. Our efforts to reform either fell short or ran out of steam. We found it much easier to focus on the problems of others rather than put those problems right in ourselves. And to be honest, we were not uncomfortable enough with our sin to really take a stand against it. Nor did we have the strength to do so if we would have wanted to. But when the life of Jesus in the seed of His gospel message began to take root in the soil of our hearts, something changed. Where there was defeat before, the prospect of victory took its place. We came to realize that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, our sinfulness was put to death. And the debt that we owed to God was paid in full. We no longer had to live like slaves to these desires that used to just rule us, that used to just take us wherever they wanted us to go, because the grace of God has set us free. Now it's important for us to understand that in a very real sense, the war has already been fought. It has already been won for us by Jesus Christ. We come to worship Jesus today because of who He is and because of what He has done. And He has already done a mighty, mighty work to set us free from what used to hold us captive. He did that by coming into this earth, by humbling Himself and taking on a human body. He took on flesh, but his flesh was slightly different than ours in that he was not a slave to sin like we are. He was subject to the same temptations that you and I have to face day in and day out. But while we are constantly having to pray for forgiveness, admit that we were wrong, double back and change our actions and renew ourselves again to the right way of living, Jesus never had to do that because every time he was tempted, he faced that temptation in victory and said no. Every time the enemy tried to pull him into the same current that this sinful world is trying to wash everyone away with, Jesus stood for the truth. He was able to do what we could not do. He fulfilled the law of Moses, and so he owed no debt to God the Father. Having fulfilled the requirements of the law, Jesus voluntarily took upon his own shoulders the guilt that we bear because of our failures against the flesh. He took the penalty of all the redeemed onto His own shoulders and paid the price that sinners deserve to pay, even though He Himself was not a sinner. He died a sinner's death on the cross and was executed in our place. 
the decisive blow was struck three days later when the same grave that had held Jesus was opened up and he walked out of it alive, resurrected, victorious over sin and over death. So the ultimate victory has already been won, brothers and sisters. Jesus even said so much on the cross right before he breathed his last. John 19.30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. If God has chosen you to salvation, he has begun a good work in you that will be carried out into completion. But that doesn't mean we don't have to struggle in the here and now. Though the end of the story has been written for those who believe, there are many chapters to go before we get to that conclusion which has already been sealed for us. When a person repents and puts their trust in the Son of God, from that point forward, the war between the flesh and the Spirit is officially on. Jesus didn't suddenly take us out of this sinful world once He saved us. He left us here where we have always lived. We remain, though we have been washed clean from sin, sin abounds all around us. We are constantly afflicted by it on every side. Temptation remains an issue for us. We have become like strangers in a foreign land. The thing that we want is to be with our Lord and Savior in the place where He dwells, in a place where there is no more strife, where there is no rebellion against Jesus, in a place where death has no victory and hell has no sting. But it is not yet time for us to enter into that place, brothers and sisters. That place is being prepared for us. But as for right now, we do battle. So how do we fight this battle that rages within us? This battle of flesh versus spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul uses four different verbs to describe the spirit-controlled life. He says in verse 16 that we are to walk by the spirit. He says in verse 18, that we are to be led by the Spirit. See if you can see a theme through these words. In verse 25, the first half, he says that we are to live by the Spirit. And in verse 25, the second half, he says that we are to keep in step with this Spirit. So when we look at this list of instructions, the general idea that Paul is communicating here is that the Spirit-controlled life is not a matter of adding one or two or three religious activities to your otherwise self-controlled life. The common denominator in each of those four instructions is the critical role that the Holy Spirit plays in our everything, in our everyday life, in every hour of every day. The sum total of our lives needs to be driven and directed by the presence and power of God's Holy Spirit, which has come to dwell in the hearts of all who have put their trust in Jesus. The Spirit wars against the flesh. We must settle into the reality that this life will be heavily impacted by the seriousness with which we approach that conflict. So how are the desires of the flesh set against the desires of the Spirit? And if they are, does this mean that everything that I enjoy is it automatically evil? Do I need to constantly deny every impulse I have to do something fun? to be happy, to seek to be entertained? Do we, have to, do we have to live a life of asceticism, a life that is stripped down and completely devoid 
of any kind of desires that might gratify our flesh? The answer to that is no. When Christ became your most important love, the things that you used to treat as idols, the things that you used to give worshipful love to, are put in their right place. What we used to be ruled by can now be ruled instead by our Lord, by Jesus Christ, and can be a blessing to us rather than a snare. Desire itself is not sinful or inherently opposed to the things of God. It simply needs to be directed at the right objects and in the right proportions. And that's something we cannot do without the aid of the Holy Spirit. The secret to, to the war between the flesh and the spirit is not to give up desire altogether. People have tried this over the years, and it, it never results in victory. There's a church father named Jerome. He was a, a very important theologian in the early church. He lived from roughly 345 to about 420 A.D. And at one point in his life, he desired to wage war by the Spirit to such a degree that he determined to leave all the earthly pleasures of life behind. He went to live as a monk in the wilderness and to partake in self-denial constantly. He wanted to live just the most very basic life he could so that the desires of the flesh would not lead him away from the Lord. And this is what he says about his time in that, in that uh, monastery. He says, and I quote uh, the words of Jerome, Oh, how I often imagined that I was in the midst of the pleasures of Rome when I was stationed in the desert. In that solitary wasteland which is so burned up by the heat of the sun that it provides a dreadful habitation for the monks. I, who because of fear of hell had condemned myself to such a hell and had who, who had nothing but scorpions and wild animals for company, often thought that I was dancing in a chorus with girls. My face was pale from fasting, but my mind burned with passionate desires within my freezing body. You see what Jerome is confessing here. This sermon is not just a list of things that you need to do to become more spirit-filled. It's, it's something much deeper than that. You can't just try to push all of the sinful temptations of the world away and live in a little Christian bubble and hope that's going to solve the problem because guess where sin comes from? Jerome took his sinfulness into the nature with him, into the wilderness. You can't get away from it. But if you've trusted Christ, something else comes to the wilderness with you, right? Something else goes with you to Rome into all of its temptations. The Holy Spirit, which is more powerful than your flesh. So the idea is not to just eliminate all entertainment from your life and all fun and all happiness. No, rather, it is to desire a God that seeks first the kingdom and His righteousness. And once that is primary, once that is first, when we sincerely want Christ and what, what Christ wants for us, He begins to mold and shape our desires so that things of the flesh don't seem as tempting to us anymore. We don't desire them like we used to desire them. That battle happens in an internal way through faith. The latter verses of this chapter are going to focus on next week how we walk in the Spirit. But to fight a battle well, we must know what we are fighting against. And so in order to give clarity and definition to this idea of the works of the flesh, the Apostle Paul lists several of them for us here in the verses we're looking at this morning. Galatians 5, 19-21 says, Now the works of the flesh 
are evident. What does that mean? That means that if we have the Spirit, then it should be somewhat obvious to us what kind of things God is not happy with. We should be able to see. If we fall into sin, we should know it. We should sense it. We should understand that this is not something that is glorifying to God. It should be evident to us. And yet, nevertheless, He lists off these things in detail for us. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger or rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These behaviors represent the actions of a person who is not led by the Spirit, but is led by a far less noble force. They are allowing themselves to be led by their old nature. They are listening to the voice of the appetite that used to rule them, rather than listening to the voice of their good shepherd. And to a Spirit-filled Christian, these sins should be obvious. We should look at this list and say something like, yes, of course, those are the works of the flesh because they are in many ways opposed to the way that Jesus lived His life. Sin is not just the violation of a rule. Sin is an attack on love. The God who sets the rules and delivers the commandments is a God of love. He is love Himself. So when we oppose God and we say no to the things that God tells us to say yes to, then we are battling against not just a set of rules, not just the Mosaic Covenant, we're battling against love itself. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him. And see what's connected to the love there? And keep His commandments. Those two things are not separate. They are one and the same. When you love your God, there will now be a desire to keep His commandments. When you love the Lord Jesus, you're going to walk like Jesus walked. You're going to desire to do so. You won't do it perfectly, but that will drive you. You'll want to be like the one who saved you. We go to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, and we see this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. So any definition of love that you've been working with that doesn't match with what God is and what God desires, that's a false love. That is a, a twisted understanding of what love really is. If you want to know love, you must seek after God. You must understand the heart of God if you want to understand what love really is. In 1 John 2, verses 4-6, through 6, it says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Very strong word. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Brother John here is really taking the church to task. And if we were to apply this to the church in America today, there would be a lot of people looking down. Be a lot of people self-consciously looking away. Because what the Apostle John is saying in this passage is that you cannot say, I love the Lord God. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I follow after Him. And then walk your own path every day of your life, except for maybe Sunday. You can't do that. There's an inconsistency there. We are called 
to truth and love. And if you're going to really love God, that means that this battle must be fought in your heart. And the only way you're going to win that battle is through the power of the Holy Spirit. These regulations that Paul lays out here are forbidden out of true love. He says no to these things because he loves us. These, these activities are a threat to our contentment, to our unity, to our joy, to our relationships. And so a God who loves us cannot permit them to go on in our communities, in our lives. I think it will be helpful to us if we break down this list of concepts into shorter categories that share common themes. I, I have a hard time like grasping large lists of things, so I try to split them up into things that are more similar to each other. We're not going to carefully examine each of these sins, and there's a reason for that. We're going to see that a little bit later. But we're going to see how these offenses taken together and in groups, in some way or another, threaten the integrity of that beautiful action that is so critical to the very nature of God Himself. They threaten love. There are 15 sins listed here overall. In the first group, we're going to list sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and orgies. Sexual immorality is any activity which misuses the beautiful gift of physical intimacy that God has imparted to those who enter into the covenant of marriage. Sexuality is a sacred thing. And we're not just talking about being opposed to same-sex relationships here. There is so much more to sexual immorality. And our culture is plagued by infidelity, is plagued by fornication, sex outside of marriage, is plagued by the kind of sexual relations that do no honor to the gift of marriage that God has given to us. Sex is a sacred thing. God has designed it to be an act of honesty and commitment between two people. Two individuals uncover themselves before one another and are sharing the most intimate aspects of their identity in an act of trust. And yet the world has taken that beautiful, that beautiful communion and has industrialized it, has commercialized it, has used it to sell products, has used it to indulge people's fleshly desires instead of seeing it as the wonderful gift that it is. So sexual immorality is walking by the flesh, not by the spirit. Impurity, likewise, is treating what is holy as uncommon or as, as common. This applies to more than just sexual impurity, although that's what we often think of first. So judging by the other items on the list, we can see that it is not rare for impurity to manifest itself in ways that man mankind expresses his sexuality. But we can be impure in the ways that we eat, in the way that we handle our temple. We can be impure in our thoughts to other folks. We can be impure in the ways that we handle our business affairs. So impurity is walking in the flesh. Sensuality means putting more stock in the physical experience of this world than we should in our sight and touch and taste and smell. It's not limited to sexual indulgences either, but often includes sexual indulgences. It can include inebriation. It can include overeating. It can include opulence and greed. And then there is this fourth awkward word, orgies, which refers to, in the Roman context, wild parties where sin was just rampant. It was parties where people would just basically say all the rules are off. You can just basically do whatever you want to do. Almost like the equivalent of a modern day rave, I would guess. 
In the Roman Empire, they would have these days or these celebrations where they just get together and the, the wine would flow and people would do things that they probably regret later. But for that small amount of time, they thought it was okay. A Christian who is led by the Spirit cannot allow themselves those vacations from the Spirit. We must walk consistently with our Lord. And so each of these four sins that we just listed here are a corruption of love. They are love perverted. When we act in such ways, we want what is best for ourselves, even if it comes at the expense of someone else. Sex before marriage wants to gratify the flesh, even though it might cause emotional distress in the partner, even though it might cause an unplanned pregnancy, even if it might lead to some very difficult decisions about whether we stay with this person or don't stay with this person. It's a selfish act that takes the concept that is beautiful, love, and twists it and perverts it and corrupts it in such a way that it doesn't act the way that it was designed to act. Being driven by a carnal appetite is a perversion of love when we don't consider the long-term consequences of our actions and we are reckless in the way that we apply our affections. Then we pervert love. We attack what is pure and good and holy in love. In the next category, we will list idolatry, sorcery, envy, and drunkenness. These four sins represent love misdirected. Love misdirected. Worship of the wrong, undeserving objects. When you think about idolatry, that's obvious, right? When we, when we care for things more than we care for God, then we have made an idol of those things. We are still in some ways loving. There's passion there. There's desire. But it's directed at the wrong, undeserving object. At something temporary. Something that eventually will become outdated. That will crumble. That will fall apart over time. That cannot fulfill our heart's desires. Sorcery is a love of power that does not come from God. Envy is a love for those things that other people have been blessed with which inevitably is paired with an ignoring of what God has blessed us with, not being content with what the Lord has decided you need and you would, you would best handle. And then drunkenness is a love for those things of the world which we think give us relief or happiness, but in truth only work to drive a wedge between us and our God. This is love misdirected. And the last category is a little bit longer. We see divisions and enmity. We see strife and jealousy. We see fits of rage. The word there for fits of rage is interesting. It, it hearkens to a, a dog who barks when the door is knocked upon, even though they don't know if it's a friend or an enemy. You ever notice that? Could be the, the dog's best friend at the door, but as soon as they hear that noise, they just instantly, rawr, 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 and that's how people act sometimes. Fits of rage, just so quick, so short of a fuse. We see rivalries. We see dissensions. And what do these sins represent? They represent love withheld. Love not freely given to one another. Love distributed selfishly. An unwillingness to give love to others perhaps based on the perceived worthiness of that individual for love. Even despite the fact that we ourselves are unworthy of the infinitely more valuable love of God and yet it has been showered upon us. And yet we still allow ourselves to be jealous of others. We still allow ourselves to be angry at one another and to hold grudges. We, we allow ourselves to hold back our love when we should not. These three categories, I, I hope they're useful. 
but they are not exhaustive. And neither is the list itself. Paul lists these 15 specific threats to love and then adds in verse 21, and things like these, right? What does that tell us? That means this isn't the whole picture. This is just a sampling of the many sins that attack the love that we are supposed to live according to. That's the main reason why I'm not taking the time to look at each of those 15 sins through a microscope this morning because you could add hundreds of more ways to attack love and live in the flesh if you took the time to think about it. So we're not talking about the 15 most deadly sins. We're talking about 15 examples of sin in general. And these particular sins, I think Paul chose them strategically, are likely listed because of the impact that they have on those around us. As members of the community of faith, which is a particular concern to the Apostle Paul and these churches in Galatia, these types of sins tend to divide us. And Galatian churches right now are under attack by false teaching. So there's great potential for division. If you take that false teaching and then add to it the works of the flesh, then you're going to have a church in shambles. And so Paul is, is listing these different items because he doesn't want the Galatians' love for one another to be threatened. And we're going to see more of that as we get into the fruits of the Spirit, which Paul is going to give to us as a way of defining the positive way we are to act towards one another. Don't forget the warning that Paul gave us at the end of the last section of scriptures we studied in Galatians 5. In verse 15 he said, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So what is Paul concerned with? He's concerned with their relationships together as a church and their relationship with Jesus, their Christ. Choosing to walk in the flesh rather than choosing to walk in the Spirit will affect the community you belong with, your family, your friends, your workplace, your church, your neighbors. But we see here that there is also a very important impact on the heart of the individual. That final warning again. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place that we dwell with Him. The kingdom of God represents it's a, quite a grand concept. It represents God's rule over what he has made. If you are not in the kingdom of God, it means that you are waging war against the kingdom of God. Many people don't realize this, but before you have Christ, you are not just estranged from God, you were an enemy to him. You fought against what was good and holy and righteous. You corrupted true love with the way that you lived according to your flesh. But the kingdom of God is the reality in which God is ruling. And it is, it's going on right now. There's a sense that Jesus is ruling from the throne that He is in control, He's sovereign over all that He has made, but we also look forward, church, to this final place of dwelling. God saved us, He didn't take us out, uh, out to heaven yet, but He is preparing a place for those who believed in Him. So when this journey is finished, when we are done walking our road here in this temporal world and earth, then we will enter into that kingdom if we have this Spirit, if we are sealed through faith in Jesus Christ. Who exactly are those who do such things who will not enter into this kingdom? It's not those who make any mistake that could fall into this list. I want to assure you of that. Some of you are maybe reading these verses and you're thinking, I've committed some of these sins. Am I disqualified from the kingdom of heaven? Not necessarily. We're not talking about anybody who has ever sinned in these ways. We are talking about those who walk according to these ways. The verb form of action here in this passage, when it says that those who do such things, 
not just that they do them occasionally or that they've done them before. It is a present participle in the active voice. That means it is an ing word, like sinning, cursing, forsaking. It's something that goes on with a consistency. These sins are regularly present in the lives of people being described. It suggests a lack of repentance and a contentment to continue in such wicked behaviors. So friends, as we wage war against the flesh, there will be times when we might commit one of those sins that's on this list that Paul gave us. But if you truly have the Holy Spirit dwelling with you, what's going to be the response to that? How are you going to react to that failure? It's not going to doom you and condemn you forever. It's going to cause you to look at your life and to examine what you've done and to say, this is not who I am. It might be who I used to be, but it's not who I am. This is not who Christ has saved me to be. I, I need to repent. I need to confess this to my God. I need to bring it to Him and share with Him that I need His strength to overcome this temptation. I obviously couldn't do it on my own strength. I need God's help to overcome so don't think that this list is a, is a taboo list of sins, that if you commit these, there's no way you're getting into heaven. Rather, if you live in such a way that your life is characterized by these sins, if you are regularly involved in this type of fleshly activity, and you're okay with it, you're not battling it, you're, you don't hate that you do it, you're not seeking the help of the Lord to overcome it, then you have something to be worried about. Because where is the battle if that is you? Where is the conflict between that spirit that should be in you if you've trusted Jesus and that flesh which has been there since day one? Friends, we've been talking about the spirit. We're going to continue to talk about the spirit because Paul's not just fixed on uh, prevention. He's not just here to tell us what we can't do. He's here to show us how we are to live. So we're going to continue to talk about this spirit. But I have to let you know that this battle we've been talking about is a battle you cannot win if you do not have the Spirit. And if you don't have Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then the battle is unwinnable for you. The only way that you can hope to battle the urges of the flesh is through Jesus Christ, this greater power that God gives to those who put their faith in Him. For those who simply come to Him with a heart that humbly says, Yes, God, I am a sinner. Yes, I struggle against you your laws. I do not naturally walk in the ways of goodness and truth. And no matter how much I do, I can't become like Jesus. I cannot perfect myself. I need your grace. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ yet here today, friends, I urge you to consider the state of the battle in your heart. Is there even a war being raged yet? Perhaps up to this point you've been happy to live as a free agent. You've been happy to live as the God of your own life to walk the, own way, the way that you want to walk, and you haven't really felt bad about it, but perhaps the Word of God is beginning to do a mighty work in you today. Perhaps the Holy Spirit of God is beginning to have you see your life in a new light. And if that is the case, I pray that this battle is beginning in you. I pray that you will step back and take examination of who you are and whether or not you belong in the kingdom of God. You can't get there by yourself. You can't create a formula of good works that is enough to, for God to say, well, that's, that's decent. I'm going to let you in. You're better than most of the people. That's not how it works according to the gospel. But if you are here today and you do not have a close relationship to Christ according to His grace, 
then I would urge you that today might be the day of salvation for you. Perhaps the Holy Spirit brought you here to hear this message and to consider these truths and to bow your life to Him and to enjoy be received into the family of God by faith. You want to talk more about that after the service? I'll be available. We have several elders here that could talk with you or if you feel more comfortable talking to the person who invited you, then talk to the person who brought you. Let them know that you're thinking about these things. Uh, there's another option if you want to take your prayer card out and just write in your prayer card that you'd like to know more about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can turn that into our prayer box in the back wall and one of us will contact you this week. We can get together and spend as much time as you need to talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit and to love the Lord God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I pray that you will do that today. I'm looking forward to the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to learn about next week, friends. Read ahead. That's not cheating. Read ahead. Think about the things we're going to learn, all right? And next week we'll, be coming, uh, we'll come excited to see not just what we're not allowed to do, but what we have the freedom to do thanks to the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads with a word of prayer and then our worship team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. Mighty God, you are great and we are thankful for your great word which teaches us what is true. We trust it because it doesn't lie. We look back on the full counsel of your word and it has been consistent from day one. It never goes out of style. It never needs a revision. Father, there is not a, a supplementary new version of this Bible that we need to get to know what you want for us, God. This is the truth. And so I pray that we would be faithful to what you have called us to be faithful to. We ask, Lord, that we would stop trying to do this by our own strength. We pray, Lord God, that when we attempt to be holy people apart from you, that you will gently humble us and remind us where we need to put our trust. You, God, are the one who refines our heart. You are the one who can make us holy. So we thank you, God, for all that you are doing in our lives. And we pray that our pursuit of you would not end on the Lord's Day, that it would continue every day of the week. We would seek you in prayer and in study of your word and in the ways that we love one another. We are grateful for you, God. And we lift up these words in the name of your strong son, Jesus. Amen.